If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Listeners, today our guest, Shreder Prasad, is one of the top experts on nonprofit strategy, philanthropic markets, and has recently dived into the world of big bet grant awardees. Don't just take my word about his expertise. You can go to the Stanford Social Innovation Review, which, as we all know, is kind of the gold standard for our industry, and read his three articles. Now, just wait until you hear just a little bit about Schreeder's resume. He's currently a partner in the Bridgespan Group's Boston office. Now, he's worked with a number of nonprofits, foundations, and philanthropic collaboratives. These include the Women's World Banking, the Inter-American Development Bank, the Gates Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Lever for Change, and the Audacious Project. Much of his work has focused on building successful platforms that harness and direct philanthropic capital to high-impact organizations. Now, Prior to Bridgespan, Schreeder worked for another group that you have probably heard of, and that's the Boston Consulting Group. Hey, Schreeder, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dolph. It's a pleasure to be here. So on your Stanford Social Innovation Review article that is entitled Becoming Big Bettable, I have to admit that before I read the article, the phrase big bettable was not one that I thought a lot about. So can you share with myself and also with our listeners, what exactly is Big Bettable? Sure, Dolph. And first, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you and with all of your listeners. For us, we would define Big Bettable as organizations that have the capacity to both attract and deploy uh, large philanthropic gifts. And we've defined that in prior research as gifts of over $10 million in size. For us, you know, the $10 million mark is not necessarily a hard and fast rule. You know, it could be 15, it could be 20. It's, we picked a number that, that felt big and robust enough. And truthfully, our take is that 
think bets matter, that it's a heck of a lot easier to address some of the large social change challenges that many of our friends are trying to address with larger gifts. And too often, the reverse is true. We're expecting the social sector to create powerful transformational change, and revenue models are made up of nickels and dimes. And so part of our work at BirdSpan over the past few years has been to both understand the landscape of big bets and understand what it would take to unlock more big bets and unlock more philanthropy. That's why I look forward to getting into more over the next 20 minutes. That's really awesome. And when you said, you know, where too many organizations try to make their mission work with nickels and dimes, what I immediately thought of was, and I know you're going to want to slap me for this, Schreeder, but what I immediately thought of was the March of Dimes, which, you know, which, which was founded to combat polio. And the whole point was mail in your dimes, mail in your dimes. Of course, a dime was worth a lot more in 1948 than it is today. But still, like, you know, that, that was their entire campaign was, hey, march your dimes into our office. We're going to take care of polio in the U.S. Well, and, and to be clear, that, that there are many, many organizations which have built extraordinary missions and extraordinary enterprises on the back of small dollar fundraising and mass market fundraising. And that is, one, just an extraordinary gift. And, and the organizations that are able to harness that and deploy that for mission, they are exceptional organizations. It's also, from our experience, more the exception rather than the rule. And especially the more and more, and we deal with a lot of organizations for whom philanthropy and foundation funds are a core part of their revenue models. With those organizations or organizations which really depend on major donor gifts for their fuel, you know, I think those there, I think the rule is much more so that the bigger the check size, the more that you can think about deploying towards impact. And frankly, from a, from a philanthropist perspective, you know, it is hard to meet to meet your ambitions without a corresponding commitment in size to to what you to, to your aspirations. Right. Oh, oh, absolutely. And it's interesting. I actually do talk a good little bit about eradication of polio on this show, in part because yeah. I'm a Rotarian, and you know, Rotary. Rotary went big and bettable in the 80s and 90s saying we're going to eradicate polio and has kind of been snowballing it ever since, bringing on the World Health Organization. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, as you know, the Gates Foundation, you know, signed on and said, yeah, you know, we're going to commit major money, you know, in in the B billion range, not the M million range to bet on this because we think this is big and bettable. Yeah, it's one of the more extraordinary philanthropic achievements of the last few decades. So I've got to ask you, because I, I know in the SSIR article, you kind of have this great anonymous quote where someone's like, if I could just get lunch with Bill or Melinda Gates, <laughs> I know they would get this. And part of the reason I smile about this is I admittedly, I don't work with a lot of 25 million and I, I don't think I've ever worked with a $100 million organization. So in my own practice, I don't work with a lot of $25 million organizations. I do work with a lot of million, two million, five million, quarter million dollar organizations. And it's interesting because I often hear people say that. I often hear people say, you know, but, but you can shift it for your city. So so, you know, if we could only get in front of Bill and Melinda Gates, if we could only get in front of Bernie Marcus, who's Home Depot, you know, uh, you know, like I, I do, I hear that all the time. And can you say a little bit about, you know, how how organizations become position themselves in such a way that one day they might get in front of a Gates or a Marcus yeah. or a blank? Yeah. So I think we'd note a couple of things from our research. The first is that it is rare for the first gift that a philanthropist gives to any organization to be a big bet. It happens without question. But 
the research that we've gone through and the article talks about the elements of what we think about a big bettable prospectus. In some ways, the audience for those prospectuses are, are, are most likely your existing donors. But a donor who may have the giving potential to give you know, 10x or 20x what they're giving right now to the organization, but they just haven't conceptualized the organization that way. Part of it is that, you know, I think in, in the article and in many of our discussions, we think about the way in which social change has to market itself in a donor marketplace, if you will, versus uh, large-scale institutions, hospitals, colleges, universities, so on and so forth. And the work that we do is often more intangible. It is more difficult to to wrestle down into a quote-unquote product. I think that's a good thing because I think that means that we're taking on more complex challenges. But I also think that means it's it's a lot harder for a donor to really understand both what you are trying to achieve as well as what it would take to achieve that goal. And so, you know, part of it is how can we bring uh, a bit more refinement to a prospectus or to laying out the story for an organization such that that particular organization can go from being the 10th most important cause or the 20th most important cause for giving philanthropists to in their top five. Because it's when it gets to be in someone's personal top three or top five that they then decide to make a, a much deeper commitment, both in terms of dollars and, you know, it's, it's time and treasure that they're willing to give. And that combination is when philanthropy, we think, can be at its best. I will say it's funny that you say that because I have certainly worked with organizations and I, I kind of work all over the country, but you know, I'm, I'm based out of, out of Atlanta, you know, and I've certainly worked with organizations that, you know, that frankly have received some of those initial small bets from their local philanthropists, whether that's, you know, Arthur Blank or Bernie Marcus or, you know, Bob and Renee Parsons, if, you know, if you're in the Phoenix area. And I think you're right. They kind of make those bets just to kind of gauge where is this organization at? It, you know, it, it allows them to be able to look under the hood and really get a sense of, you know, is this organization using our funds well? And, you know, or do we feel like we're getting the impact that we want when we make this relatively, and again, everything's relative, relatively smaller gift for them? That's right. I mean, we our research would indicate that when an organization receives a ten plus million dollar gift, and again, we define a ten million dollar gift as a multi year gift, and so you know, it might be two to three million a year, something like that, which is still a very substantial amount for the vast majority of nonprofits in this country. But it's typically the fourth or fifth gift that's coming from that donor, and the big bet itself is often a commitment that is. You know, five to ten times what the previous commitment was. So it's it is in some ways. How do you, if that person's already in the door, they they already have some level of trust. But now, how do you lay out the story in such a way to create a step up? And that's in some ways why the the elements of of what we laid out in the article of what makes for a potentially successful big bettable prospectus or a big bet prospectus rather. Well, it's an attempt to try to connect. You know, I think we've done a lot of research on the amount of big bets that exist and frankly the the paucity of big bets in social change the article is i think an attempt to say well how do we address this not just from the donor side where i think there's some real conversations that have to be had but from the doer side of what is it that nonprofits could do to potentially be more again to use the first phrase that you use big bettable I appreciate you saying that that's the first phrase i used my friend that's your phrase and that's a great phrase <laughs> <laughs> 
So let me ask you, you know, so if you're a small half million or million dollar organization, probably, frankly, at that point, don't feel so small because you started as a $10,000 organization. But, you know, if you're a half million or or $1 million organization and the local philanthropist in your city, regardless of the size of your city, makes what for them is a big bet. Maybe it's a $50,000 gift or a $100,000 gift. What are some of the things that that organization needs to do to really help help cement that relationship and ensure that they get the second, the third, the fourth gift that maybe is 5X or 10X? Yeah. So I actually think that the elements of a big bettable prospectus that are laid out in the article are in many ways not conditional upon a $10 million gift, but are core questions that I think any rigorous philanthropist is likely to ask. And so it's useful to think through those elements of, you know, to what degree can you answer those questions in an affirmative way or in a way that gives clarity to that donor on your strategic intent, your strategic aspirations, and what you want to achieve. So in the article, we list out five elements, two of which nonprofits generally are really strong at capturing, three of which may be different. The first is thinking through um, what's the compelling problem that you're trying to address. And this we're pretty good at. We're pretty good at you know, describing the magnitude of the challenges that we as organizations in the sector are trying to address. The second we describe as, a, as what is the point of arrival that a particular gift is going to contribute to? And that is not a one-year landing point, but it's also not a 20-year vision. It's something in the, you know, a five to 10-year, you know, based if, if, if you receive this gift and corresponding gifts, what would the world look like? What meaningful change will happen that's paired with that problem that you just laid out. The third element we'd say is, you know, what's the credible path to achieving that point of arrival? Have you thought about what is necessary to, to get to that landing spot and all of the elements that are required to do so? The fourth would be why philanthropy. And, and I think you know, nonprofits have a number of different funding options. Philanthropy is one powerful one, but there are imperfections in it, or rather there's, there's reasons to use philanthropy and there's reasons not. And to be able to articulate the donor's role in this journey is probably pretty helpful. And the fifth is why this team, why this leader in this team, which again, I think nonprofits generally have exceptional leaders and teams. We are fortunate and blessed to be able to work with so many of them. And so that's a, usually an area of strength as, as organizations think about themselves and think about describing their activities. But you know, those questions or those themes, we lay it out as, as part of a successful big bet perspective but I think they are universally applicable. And the sharper organizations can be around some of those kinds of questions, the more they may be answering donor needs or rather might be positioning themselves in such a way that a donor can see giving to their local nonprofits the same way they give to their local university or hospital, which too often the balance is tilted on that equation. Right, right. So, among those five, is there one that you think local nonprofits have the most difficult time kind of describing, laying out, and making the case for? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's, it's in some ways, it's a combination of the first three, but I'd probably point to the, the point of arrival and the credible path if you take those as, as a combination. And that's in part because what the incentive structure in the sector is not to often pull up and think about where are we going you know and what how are we actually meaningfully 
changing the problem, attacking the problem in a meaningful way, especially if you're in human services or something where the need is so great and you are spending every moment in service in a meaningful way. There's a little bit of a chicken and the egg challenge here, which is what big bets in some ways allow organizations to do is to exactly pull up. It's to give a little bit of that cushion and breathing room to then be able to say, well, what could we do? You know, how could we go from serving to solving or you know, going in that equation in some ways? And yet some of that thinking is probably required to be able to get that gift that allows you to pull up in the first place. And so that that, that is, I think, the, the challenge. But I think absent articulation of how a particular donor gift changes both the trajectory of an organization and the trajectory of a problem, it's tough to see, just in our experience, those kinds of sizable commitments happening. And so that's the that's probably the hardest strategic, you know, strategic challenge, strategic question to solve. And I'd say the most important. And how typically do organizations make that shift? And I love that phrase from serving to solving, from saying, okay, you know, we're doing a great job of service, but what are we going to do differently? And how are we going to operate yeah. to actually solve the issue? Like w- what do organizations do to successfully make that transition? I think often a number of Things. I mean, the first is, and, and you know, you're asking a strategy consultant all about strategic planning. So the, the, to, to some degree, you get a little bit of the answer of it's helpful to have a strategic plan. It's helpful to think through some of those kinds of questions. We are in the service business. We support and help empower and accelerate our clients. And we're thrilled to be able to do that kind of work. I do think there's a healthy burgeoning industry of people who, who help nonprofits get some of the time and space to be able to think about those kinds of questions. The one thing I'd say is the phrase in some ways from serving to solving sometimes sounds like you're denigrating the fast sector of of our social sector, which is in the serving business because we have to meet basic human needs. And I wouldn't want that to be the interpretation from our discussion, which is that is a vital part of civil society. It is a vital part of what is needed. And frankly, you know, there's a supplement. We, we put a supplement about, about big bettable of which the article we wrote is one article. But David Callahan of Inside Philanthropy in, in the supplement basically says, you know, there's a ton of work and service that people just need to fund. We'd agree with that. 100% we'd agree with that. And I think there is a, you know, in, in some ways, and we are, we have been at the point of this, and I think it's, our language is probably becoming more nuanced, which is philanthropy needs to be strategic. Philanthropy also needs to be responsive. Mm-hmm. So both of those things are important. I think that that, what you do get is organizations which are in the serving business, which then say, what are the lessons that we're learning from the service that we've done that then indicate what kind of structural systemic changes are needed and how do you shift from that? We've been fortunate to to get to know an organization called the Bail Project, which has a fascinating model of using of just basically using philanthropic funds to pay for cash bail. And so that's a basic service function, which is there's a bunch of people who are in pre-trial detention using philanthropic dollars to bail them out. That And the outcomes are radically better once someone is not waiting for trial in jail versus not. Okay. Well, the shift that they are themselves are making is, you know, what kind of data are we learning from all of the people that we're bailing out? How do we use that data to, to empower the field to move from just bailing people out to creating a system where bail is far more equitable slash maybe doesn't exist. How do we create a justice system 
that is far more equitable? How do you change the conversation in some ways? You know, to me, that's the epitome of rooting your work in the day-to-day reality that you you do, and then almost synthesizing from that into how do we change basic systems given that given that work. And so, Shreeder, I have to share with you, in some way, I feel a little bit validated in everything you just said. As a consultant, I do a good little bit of strategic planning, and, and I, I typically vet clients, pretty prospective clients, pretty carefully. I'm pretty clear about the types of projects I want to work on and those that I don't. And one of the things that I often kind of vet for, and I say this, I don't facilitate what I refer to as 5% strategic plans. And those are the plans where, you know, where an organization's like, well, over the next three years, we want to do 5% or 15, you know, you know, whatever. Like if you're a soup kitchen, we want to serve 15% more people at, at the end of three years. Cause I'm like, you can figure out how to do that without me or anybody else. You just have to, you know, sit down as an organization and figure it out. Like, you know, for, so it's interesting you say that because for me, it really is planning is all about how are we going to look at at the, our mission and what we're trying to accomplish and figure out how we can exit, whether that's double it, triple it, or even change the equation and at some level eliminate the problem. You know, so it's like, you know, like if you're a food pantry, you know, wouldn't it be just incredible if you had a 10 or 20 year goal of eliminating hunger or food deserts or whatever in the neighborhood that your food pantry is serving, as opposed to we want to serve 12% more people in the next three years. So it's funny because for me, like a lot of that is that, and I agree with you, I think, you know, I, I started life as a case manager and I get that serving is really important, but if that's all we're doing is serving, you know, at, at some level, we're, we're not solving the problem. And we're kind of saying, Hey, you know what, we're happy just being in a service role and not being concerned about, about how to actually fix this issue. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like being a firefighter that never actually wants to put the fire out. Yeah, and, and it's an interesting pair if you think about that question about what's the role of philanthropy within your given organization. Because you know, one of the, the criticism of, of philanthropy that I think is warranted is you know, donor gifts are time limited often. You know, it is not a – some donor gifts are recurring revenue, but as many of your listeners are probably know – you know, whenever they're going through donor renewals or grant renewals, you know, those are not slam dunks. I think part of that's because philanthropists often look at their giving as either growth capital or something that can create a step change evolution within their organization in some ways. And so if you meet that idea, if you say, you know, I have my recurring revenue streams and I have sort of a recurring funding model, but you know, for this donor who's looking to make a growth capital investment in me, what would that look like? What are the kinds of potential possibilities that that would open? That in some ways, you know, the questions you're asking in some ways meet with what philanthropy can sometimes be good at, which is providing that that infusion to potentially, as you mentioned, change the question. I could not agree more. And in my experience in, in working with some of the high value philanthropists, they also are really good at maybe thinking about the importance of changing the question as well as actually, you know, frankly, and, and it is kind of amazing what a 45 minute meeting with, you know, with someone who has over the course of their career earned a billion dollars, you know, built a business that's earned a billion dollars. It's amazing, like what 45 minutes of free consulting with that philanthropist will do for you. So as we're thinking about Big Bettable, are there other things that nonprofits should be thinking about as they're considering how to make themselves big and bettable and how to approach philanthropists 
with the ability to really make those cause-changing gifts? I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question because in some ways I think about the questions that are within the Big Bettable article, the getting to what's your point of arrival, what's your critical path, what's the credible pathway to get there, those are some pretty big questions, right? That's, that's a hard kind of meaty questions. And so I'm loath to add more to the list in some ways or add more to the plate versus actually getting really clear about you know these questions of almost strategic intentionality in some ways. You know, but I I do think that there's probably a number of things folks could do. But if I was to distill what we've been learning, limiting it to in some ways, you know, what who amongst my current donor base can I harvest, and how do I approach them with a proposal or a prospectus that is more refined and more tailored to what they may be expecting slash what they often may get from other kinds of nonprofits that that are soliciting their sport. I'm not sure I'd want to overcomplicate it more than that in some ways, or I'm not sure I'd want to add more than that to that basic action plan. I think if that doesn't work, then there's, there's a broader conversation, but that to me feels like the, the first steps to, to being able to get on that trajectory in some ways. And so what does that proposal look like? You know, since you just said, Hey, you know, this is a pitch or a proposal that, That is not your typical proposal. It's not what this philanthropist is getting from every other organization that is working on that cause nationally or locally. In many ways, the background for some of the research is important. And I want to just name a a bit of data in in many ways, because that data is the burning platform that we think about at Birdspan. And then I'll come back to the proposal piece. So the reason we care about this deeply is two data points, I'd say. One is the paucity of big bets that exist right now. So we did a piece of research a few years ago where we looked through every public statement made by the giving pledgers on, you know, the every giving pledger has to write a statement of what they want to do with their giving pledge. And we looked at other press articles and we noticed that the vast majority of donors list social change objectives, things like polio, malaria, after school education, climate change, protecting democracy, you know, you know, criminal justice, et cetera, in you know, their top one, two, three priorities. And then we looked at every gift that was made of over, a ten, over $10 million over, I think, a 10-year period. And 80% of those gifts went to sort of institutions or to not social change causes in some ways. Now, we tried to be as generous as we could with that, with that data set. That 80-20, 20-80 aspiration gap effectively was what what emerged for us. The second data point that gives us a burning platform is that we are probably on the verge of one of the single, the greatest generational wealth transfer in certainly American history, potentially world history, given the compounding of wealth and, and all of the dynamics that are in the news quite frequently about the composition of our society. You know, absent organizations being able to, I think, credibly articulate what they can do to address some of these meaningful social problems, the incentive is for all that capital to basically go to where it's been going to date. So either it doesn't get gifted at all, or if it gets gifted, it goes to large institutions that do remarkable things with that capital, but where you know it's hard to say the incremental social value for organizations that have endowments that are 1, 5, 10, 20, 30, 50 billion dollars and so on. 
So that's the context in some ways. That's the, the burning platform for Bridgespan, why we care about this as an issue, as a topic, particularly considering our own mission and our deep desire to, to accelerate and enable social change makers. So the question becomes, well, how do you then, you know, what does make you distinctive? And again, you know, part of the challenge is there's a million nonprofits in America. So if you again come from the donor perspective, what becomes hard for you as a donor is where the heck do I pick? How do I know who's good? How do I know where to give my money? Perhaps, you know, it, I effectively end up giving to nonprofits or supported by my friends or who throw fancy galas or things like that, right? There's a disconnect between the importance of the problem the credible path for the, the for the, the, cre- the credibility of the solution and the path to get there, you know, the point of arrival and the path to get there and the gift itself. So our focus on these elements as part of a big bettable perspective, our focus on, and I don't think it's a form question, I think it's really meaningfully addressing those questions and elevating those questions is in some ways, how do you how do you create the the dynamics such that someone who deeply cares about an issue can look at your program and say, I get it. I get how it's going to make a meaningful impact against this important problem I care about. I get how you're going to do it. I get why you need me and what you need my dollars for. And I believe in this team. Okay, now let's get to work. That in some ways is why those elements that we've distilled in the article just keep popping for us because it's it's a pathway to be able to, frankly, rationalize this market, to be able to close that aspiration gap. I love that. And I also think that's somewhat helpful. I know lots of us in the nonprofit sector, when we open up the Chronicle of Philanthropy and we see the front page and Harvard got another billion dollars, we're like, really, Harvard, what do you need with another billion dollars? So that's incredibly helpful. Thank you. I want to make sure that we leave a little bit of time for our off-the-map question, Shreeder. In reading your bio, I noticed that throughout your career, you have moved around the country. So you've lived in lots of cities. But I'm also aware that you've always considered Boston your home. Could you tell us what it is about Boston that's kept you coming back and why you call it home? So I actually moved to Boston from the New York, New Jersey area. My parents are still in New Jersey. In many ways, my emotional home will always be New York City. So it's funny landing in Boston, given that my Derek Jeter jersey is in my closet. doesn't get used much, but it is still in my closet out of pride. The Yankee had a little more so. It's funny that way. I do, you know, my feelings about the city were probably different when I came here the first time for school versus now. But, you know, it's it's this welcoming, vibrant, walkable city that I that I now love. And it is now home in a, in a very real sense. My wife and I were fortunate to have our first child a few months ago. And, you know, we live in an area where. If you walk for 15 minutes, you're in the middle of Cambridge, and it's as vibrant as sort of intellectually, culinary-wise, culturally-wise, as vibrant as anywhere else I can think of. And we've still got a bunch of parks and lots of green space and things that we can also enjoy. So we're incredibly blessed to be where we are, incredibly fortunate. And so I, I love it for that that balance that it seems to have, which I think I appreciate more now than, than in decades past, or years past, rather. 
That's so awesome. And I lived in the opposite direction of New York City. And so for about seven or eight years, I called Philadelphia home. And I loved it for a lot of the same reasons that, you know, it was like, it was walkable, it was vibrant, there was a lot of culture, I could get to the city when I needed to get to the city, but I could have a really great life. And so I get that. I totally get that. And I, my own emotional baseball loyalties would lead me to say I'm a proud Bostonian and let's go. That, that's awesome. I will share with you that if you live in Philly, you have no choice but to root for the home teams because, <laughs> because you will be pelted with beer bottles and other things if you do not, if you do not root for the home team. Oh, I just, I do have to say that. Like I, I was living there the year the uh, Phillies won the World Series, I think like in, I think that was 08 or 09. And I really remember thinking, if my little row home does not burn down tonight, it is going to stand for another 125 years. So I hear you. Boy, do I ever hear you. Shreeder, I am, again, just so grateful and thankful that you've joined us today. I want to make sure that people know how to get in touch with you and know how to find out more about some of the work that you're doing. So you've written many articles that cover today's topics. And so I know that folks can go to SSIR.org, which is the stand for Social Innovation Review. We will actually link to the Becoming Big Bettable article. It's kind of a long URL, so we're not going to read it out here, but we will link to that. We also want to make sure, listeners, that you check out Bridgespan.org so that you can see the vast collection of their useful resources to help your nonprofit think through strategy and how to best position yourself for those meaningful, big, bettable philanthropic gifts. Now, in particular, I also want to highlight on behalf of Bridgespan that they've got this amazing big bettable tool that is free to download. This tool will take you through step-by-step on how your organization can prepare to make good use of your big bet. So make sure you check that out as well. And that's actually at bridgespan.org. Once again, it's kind of a long URL. When I say kind of, it's uh, I'm looking at it now. It's about three lines long. So we will link to that in our show notes as well. Hey, Shreeder, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks, Dolph. Really appreciate it. If you're thinking through your big bet, then keep thinking. There's no need to try to scribble down long URLs. You can get all of the links mentioned in today's episode at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Now, as you probably know, like Schreeder, I place a high value on nonprofit strategy. From my experience helping nonprofits all around the country, it is the determining factor in your organization's success, and therefore, quite frankly, the type of impact and quality of impact that you can make depends on how well you're doing strategy. And it's one of the reasons why I feel like our conversation today was just so critical. Now, while we're talking about big bets, there is one more bet I would like for you to take, dear listener. And here's the bet I want you to take. Subscribe to our weekly email list. It is a bet with a guaranteed payoff, as you'll get a link to our weekly blog, nonprofit meme every week, and other useful resources, as well, of course, as a reminder about what the podcast is about. And best of all, this is why it's a safe bet. We don't sell the list and we never, ever email you more than once a week. So if you join it, you're not going to get a daily email or three times a day, once a week. That, dear listeners, is our show for the week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. Why 
am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.